Backstage Pass Radio is now a global podcast heard in 70 countries around the world. Our newly formed partnership with Synad Outdoor has us seeing great traction in Texas and Louisiana. Since Synad's beginnings in 1964, this family-owned and operated advertising company has become the largest independently held billboard company in Texas today. Synad prides itself on unbeatable service and turnaround time. Let their experienced design team create the perfect advertisement to showcase your business. Contact Synad today at 713-861-6013. And also make sure to visit their website at www.synad.com and tell them Backstage Pass Radio sent you. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Sam, it's been a little while, man, but it's great to see your mug there on the screen, man. Welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you. You bet. I was just talking with, what, what was that, six or eight months ago maybe already or, or yeah, no? Yeah, you know, I think it was the summertime. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. probably three, at least three for sure. I'm, yeah. I'm horrible with dates, but um, yeah. I'm going every day, man, so I don't know. I'm bad with time in general. Yeah, that's one thing that drives me nuts. You talk to these artists, and especially when you get the bigger name artists, everything is like, it's just a chronicle of albums and stuff and what year they came out and trying to keep all that in your mind. I, I mean, I have cheat sheets and whatnot but i've always struggled with dates i can remember people i met 50 years ago but i can't remember what i ate for lunch yesterday so you know it's a struggle right it's a real it's a real thing it is i got two kids and a wife and i say my wife has three kids and i'm the oldest of of the three (laughs) but same here i'm when did you eat last you know what what time's your nap all the time yeah (laughs) the dad or the husband's always the biggest kid and the hardest one to deal with i'm sure that's right. That's me for sure. Yeah. Well, I know you reside in the Nashville area now, but start off real quick by sharing with the listeners wh- where you grew up and if it was outside of Nashville, what brought you to Nashville? What's the story, the backstory there for you? The backstory, I guess I can make a long story, long story, but um, I grew up in Missouri, actually, outside of Kansas City, about 30 miles, a little town off of I-70 called Grain Valley. And what brought me to Nashville was my older brother was a guitar player in a local band in Missouri, and they didn't need another guitar player at the time. But I came in, I don't know if you can see, my dad bought me a cheap Dobro when I was 15 years old. And uh, so I would sit over in the corner not knowing how to play this stupid thing and uh, started doing that and finding my way in bands and was playing with my brother and a friend. The singer of our band, after a gig one night, he said, I'm going to Nashville in the morning, you want to come with me? And I hopped in the car and probably packed a pair of dirty underwear and, and just went on a whim. And I fell in love with the city right when I pulled into town. And obviously too young to get in anywhere. It just stuck. And I did everything that I could out of high school to get down here immediately. But I was from a, a small town, just a rural town in Missouri uh, called Grain Valley. Honestly, my dad had to drive me to gigs and uh, my brother would drive me if, you know, if we were playing together. And it just stuck, man. So... Just grew up in a little town there and uh, found my way down here just for from playing uh, in bands with my brother and kind of got my way doing that. In this little town you speak of, how far is it from like Overland Park or Kansas City? Pretty close? Yeah, we were about 35 minutes to Kansas City. Overland Park was a 45, 50 minute drive probably depending on traffic. But um, and actually I did played a few things over in Overland Park, you know, just little restaurants and things like that bands that I was playing in, we'd, we'd play bars and clubs out that way too. Really all, all around the Midwest, but in my hometown, there was a, there still is a club there. But when I grew up there, it was a little club called Whiskey Tango that brought in a bunch of nationals. And so I played a lot. Actually, I w- it was pretty cool. You know, as smallish as our town was, uh, there was a club there that, you know, held a couple thousand people, maybe 1500 people okay. and uh, brought in a lot of nationals and stuff. So we had the opportunity to open up for a lot of guys coming through and that's where I got to shake a lot of hands and a guy who I'm still friends with today and he's still in the business owned all the production that was in that venue. When I was a kid, I was just honestly rolling cables, helping strike the stage and helping 
and the changeovers in between acts and stuff. So I was pretty fortunate to have that, that that smoky club in my town. You know, it was pretty neat. It doesn't matter how you get there. It's whether you do or not. What's the old story with John Bon Jovi? Boy, he was sweeping floors in a recording studio when he kind of yeah. came up, you know, so... It's timing. Everything's timing in life, right? You just got to be in the right place at the right time sometimes. That's all what it amounts to. That's exactly right. And and I knew I wanted to do music and I knew, you know, you can't dig for gold where it's not at. And if you're going to do music, you've got to be down here. So I, I, I found any way that I possibly could to get down here to Nashville. And like I said earlier, my, my wife and my boys, we live about a half hour outside of town over in Lebanon, Tennessee. And how long have you been there in the greater Nashville area? Well, I graduated high school in in 2013, and I spent my summer there after I graduated in Missouri. And then right when school started, I I went to Nashville State Community College for a year. So 2013, I lived here from 13 to 14, and I was commuting back and forth there for a while. I was still playing in bands in Missouri, and we'll probably jump into when I started with Craig Morgan and stuff, but I I was commuting back and forth. So 2013, I lived here for a year. This is the long story long. And then uh, in November of 2018, I moved back. So it's been about five years since I've been here for this strand of time. But it's been about 10 years, man. I've been coming down here for, for 10 years. Wow, you, you said 2013. You just made me feel really old. So I'm going to go ahead and end this interview right, right now. Yeah, well, yeah I'm, I'm 28 years old now. So there's the math for you. Yeah, I was, you know, 18 years old when I came down here. I, when I was, my first time, I you know, I was 17 and it was crazy and the city was, was really big and. Ten years later, it, it seems very small, man. I've been fortunate to meet a lot of really, really cool people here. Yeah. Man. So, I bet. And I and I know you've seen Nashville grow, and that's probably a blessing and a curse all at the same time. And I know that I was out in Las Vegas, and the same thing. You know, the city has just taken on so many people, and the infrastructure can't handle the amount of people that are moving in. So now you've got all this traffic and just wall-to-wall people and it's uh nashville's a hotbed in fact i was reading something about a year ago that i think nashville is probably the most moved to city in the nation right now i believe that man i mean they're just coming in droves yeah and and it is it has been a blessing and a curse man you know there's tons of talent here and it's you know but it's a it's a big community but a small one nonetheless you know networking is crazy here but you know the downfall to it growing is as you know, I'm sure a lot of the older original spots here are, you know, kind of going away from us. Like when I first started coming here, I was hanging out at a place called the Fiddle and Steel in Printer's Alley. And honestly, that's kind of where I cut my teeth, man. I was too young to be there, but uh, I was playing every Tuesday night from eight to 10 uh, with that guy I was talking to you about yeah. earlier from Missouri. His name is Branson Ireland. Yeah, sure. Uh, him and I would do the acoustic set on Tuesday nights before the big jam night started. And then it was half a Toby Keith's band, you know. Dave McAfee, Dink Cook, Trey Hill playing guitar from Big and Rich, Craig Maddox, you know, he played with Clint Black, everybody, you know, that you could name it. It was just these all-star guys who I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, and I, I got to play guitar on that acoustic set before it started. So the, the cursed part of that is all of those places with this city growing the way it is, or those things are going away, man. And it's, it's really unfortunate, but we still got, you know, the station in and you know, the basement and all, all the other Nashville palace, all those sure. cool spots still <laughs> hanging around, you know, well, that, that was a cool spot, the Nashville Palace, and we'll talk about that. And I was going to share with the listeners real quick, kind of the story behind me meeting you was um, I was in town and my buddy John Evans, who's, who's originally from Houston, moved out to Nashville and has done some recording, like I mentioned earlier, with Dave Rowe, uh, who was with Johnny Cash and Dwight Yoakam for a while, and then wrote some songs and is good friends with uh, Hayes Carl out there. So John kind of migrated out to Nashville and we hooked up and John said, no, we got to go to a good place to listen to some music. I said, well, you suggest it because I have no idea. And he said, let's go to the Nashville Palace. So, you know, I was there to do an interview with a couple of people and I think it was you and was it Corey Hunt that were playing? I think you were playing playing a song swap at the Palace when I met you. So that's, that's kind of the uh, the first introduction to you. And by the way, you guys had some great covers, but I, I was I was taken back by some of your original work. And that's, you know, I pulled you aside and said, hey, man, I got this podcast and your songs really resonated with me. And I wanted to have you on to talk about, you know, some of your stuff. Uh, so congrats on a lot of great songs that you've written over the years. 
And thank you. I, yeah. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad those got your attention. I'm one of the million songwriters here, but you write them every day and, you know, very seldom do they get heard, recorded. Do you even get to record them yourself? You know, you just, you find yourself piling up all these songs and, and some of them stick with you. Some of them you never sing again. Sure. And uh, so I'm glad that some of those resonated with you, man. Cause you know, it's a, it's an everyday thing of, of waking up and whether I'm writing here in my little studio in Lebanon or, or I'm going into town, you know, so I'm, well, one, I appreciate you listening to the original stuff. Cause that's a, that's a big part of, of what everybody here, what I particularly do. So, well, I have this conversation all the time, Sam, and it's, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a songwriter and not so much of a songwriter, but more of a performer. I play a lot of shows here in the Cypress, Texas, greater Houston area at one time, probably somewhere around the tune of about 130 a year. And I listen to music, whereas a lot of people don't listen to music anymore. Maybe that's an age thing. Maybe it's just a respect thing. Maybe it's just the love of music. But when I go in to someplace like the Nashville Palace, and I know you see hundreds and hundreds of people come to your shows. But if you were to take a snapshot of me being there that night, you would have seen me very attentive and watching the songs and listening to the stories and the songs. And people don't listen to music like that anymore. So when you find those people, you got to gravitate to them because those are ones that really jump on the bandwagon with you and ride it. You know, you know what I'm saying? And honestly, vice versa, like from the stage, I remember right where you guys were sitting, you know, right by the garage door at that table, you and John and, uh, and from us up there singing, when we sing one of our songs and we can kind of tell that it got your attention or you're paying attention. It's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm going to wait on this $10 tip we just got for a wagon wheel. I'm going to keep on singing. Exactly. You know, yeah. you know we notice when, and appreciate thoroughly when you guys are actually listening to what we put our heart and our souls in, you know, so yeah. you can, you can totally tell from, from our side of the, I mean, as you know, as no, you, know, you, can. <laughs> you can totally tell when it's like, okay, I think, I think I might have, you know, struck something here. I'm going to keep going of on that course. Track. Try to keep the show going, you know, so. You, you can. And for people that don't sit on a bar stool night after night, I think that you might, the, the facade might be to the person that's watching the artist that we're not paying attention or we're in the song and, you know, we don't notice anybody in the place, but we're, we're very attentive to eye contact. We're very attentive to who's paying attention, who's not paying attention. And, and we're making mental notes yeah. as we go. Right. Would you agree 100%. with that? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I was reading the room, you know, it's like playing about the Nashville palaces is you can, for me, I can do what I want because I grew up on Merle Haggard, you know, George Jones, Waylon Jennings, Jerry Reed, the list goes on and on. And, you know, as you know, Randy Travis used to work in there and, and I'm pretty sure if I'm not wrong, Jerry Reed opened. That really spot. had no idea. I had no idea. Uh, yeah. His picture hangs up in there and, Anybody listening, don't quote me on that, but I am pretty positive uh, he has something to do with it. But anyway, so I get to do what I want, you know, but and a lot of times, you know, you get your request that that I'm a fan of all kinds of music. But what I like to play is the older stuff. And I feel like I get to do. And sometimes it'll strike a chord with some folks and they're going, "Okay, he just sang a Merle Haggard song and and they'll go play some George Jones, you know, and kind of set the mood or or set the tone of reading the room and, and what people want. I just start out doing what I want to do, and and then it's just kind of get the ball rolling from there, you know, yeah. looking around people are doing, oh, that, this guy just sang a Haggard song. I'm going to request some more Haggard, or, you know, the list goes on sure. and on. Throwing in an original tune or, or two in there, I've, I've been uh, lucky, you know, if, hey, do you mind if I try out this original song on you? And, and most of the time they, they say, yeah, let's, let's do it. And, and then they're like, play more originals, you know. So sure. then I, yeah. I really get to do what I want, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned some names about the Nashville Palace, and it, and it made me think where we were sitting, there was a big old picture on the wall right behind me of one of the master songwriters in Nashville, Dean Dillon. And I said, man, would I love to have that cat on my show? Boy, he's written some songs, hasn't he? The best, man. And I, I, I sing his songs every day, man. And, wow. and uh, I fortunately got to meet Dean um, when I was playing guitar for Craig Morgan. We did a show down in Key West. And... Um, and Dean was down there and the bus was leaving in about 45 minutes to head back to Nashville. And, uh, another dear friend of mine in town, Marla Cannon Goodman, her dad, her dad's buddy Cannon, the legendary producer, singer, songwriter here been in town. I mean, he is, he is Nashville in my book. And, uh, and Marla says, have you ever met Dean? And I said, no, I, I haven't actually. I mean, I obviously know who he is. She, well, come over here, meet Dino, you know? So I shook his hand and uh, he said, you're coming back to the hotel. You're going to get up and sing some songs, aren't you? And I got on my phone, immediately called my wife. I'm like, you have to book me a flight 
tomorrow so I can stay. Yeah, right. And, yeah. You know, and, seize and the I opportunity. Make, yeah. I couldn't make it happen, man. I had to hop on the bus and, and hitch back to Nashville, you know, but fortunately, man, Dean has paved the way for a lot of songwriting oh. in my book is, is Dean freaking Dylan, man. Yeah. And, and everybody I feel like tries to accomplish that just storytelling. Of course way you know that he has so anyway one of these days is coming where i'll sit and sing some songs with dean Dillon, but there you go man i, I hope you do and uh yeah i hope you do for sure and it's funny i watched a documentary not too long ago and it was about george Strait. and george Strait said if there was no dean Dillon, there would be no george Strait, right because he wrote so many hit songs for the chair marina yeah. del rey you know like all <laughs> the firemen yeah, like all of those songs were written by dean Dillon, and and not many people yeah. know that right they just mm-hmm. see george Strait as the face of those songs absolutely yeah dean yeah for sure dean is the george Strait thing you know and and i think um I, I watched that documentary man i couldn't even tell you how many times and you can tell that that george knows that and thinks that of as course. well it's, yeah. it's a super cool super cool dynamic back then man it was it was super cool and uh you know, honestly, the, the business is different these days, but I, I think I was born too late. I just love how everything was then and sure. how everybody interacted together and, and recorded each other's songs. Like I've even had talks like that with, with our friends group. You know, we all write songs together and sing together and, and do a bunch of different things. And it's like, you know, at the end of the writing session or whatever you may call it, it may fit somebody else's voice better, but it's like of change course. the key and, and then you go sing it too. You know, I mean, yeah. Tennessee Whiskey, the Dean Dillon song, that was a David Allen Coe song before yeah. it was a George Jones song. You know, it's like everybody sang each other's stuff, and I just really respect that. And the, yep. the business back then was was so freaking cool, man. Well, and I think you'd have to, to agree with me on this one, too. Nobody even looks as cool as Dean Dillon, right? I no. mean, the dude just reeks of coolness. Like, I, I can't yeah. even wake up and try to look that cool. You know what I'm saying? Man, me either. Yeah, you can't, you can't buy that. No, dude. That's, no. you yeah. either have that or you don't. You don't wake That's up right. with that one morning. Well, it's interesting because there's so many great, like you mentioned earlier, there's so many great players, so many great songwriters. Uh, There's thousands of you guys out there. And it was kind of interesting because as I talked to you, I went back to the hotel and started just looking some things up. And I later found out that you played with Craig Morgan. And uh, then I found out that Corey played piano for for Luke Combs, right? Yeah. So you, I was telling somebody, I said, you just look, there's a guy playing a guitar on a stool and you think, ah, just another aspiring musician. But you never know where these people have been and what their story is. Some of them have a story. Some of them don't yet have a story. But you right. guys have played with two of the Nashville greats, right? Some of the greatest songwriters in Nashville today. Yeah, man. And totally. Craig is just, I grew up on his music and I'm probably giving away my age and other people's age there too. But speaking of that little club I was chatting about earlier in my hometown, Craig came through there and uh, the production guy I was telling you about, he ran front of house in that club. And like I said, it was all his gear and stuff. And uh, he called me, his name's Rob Harmon, dear friend of mine. And I mean, he built me my first, for all you gear nerds out there, built me my first pedal board, gave me my first amp. Uh, I threw cables and rolled up cables and cleaned microphones and struck stages. And he, he said, if I helped him do all that stuff, he'd give me uh, a Strat, a Stratocaster. And, um, and he did, man. And so anyways, Rob, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. And uh, so anyways, Rob called me and he said, hey, Craig Morgan's coming through the club. Do you, do you want to open up? And I'm like, absolutely. You know, I had been hashing away playing acoustic gigs and had a little band there in town. And I'm like, this is, you know, it's a big deal for me. And um, so my band opened up for him. We knew some guys in Craig's band. I knew Chuck Ward. We knew Mikey Rogers. And uh, I know you had Perry Richardson on the show, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's from Striper and yep, Firehouse. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Perry was still playing bass with Craig. And uh, so anyway. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I was doing my sound check and, uh, and Mike Rogers walked out the front of the house and I just saw during I was playing an original song to sound check and I saw Mikey give uh give Rob a hug at front of house. I'm like, that's a that's a good sign, you know. Rob was mixing real well and uh Rob goes, Man, they offered me the front of house gig and and he toured for a year with them and he called me and, and he said, Man, they need a they need a merch guy out here with Craig Morgan. Would would you be interested in doing that? And I thought, man, you know, it it'd get my foot in the door on touring on a bus and, and seeing the country and I'm, you know, trying to get my, my foot in the door a little bit more and um and so I did, man. I, I went out and I sold merch for Craig for two years. And yeah, I kind of grinded it out and uh, learned how to live on a bus and and learned a lot from watching Craig sing every night. And uh, one of the guitar players was leaving and Craig and I had a conversation. He said, man, you're the only other guy in the crew that knows anything about my guitars. You want to be my guitar tech and stage manager. 
And uh, I said, man, I thought he was going to say guitar player, which where I was heading was <laughs> playing guitar and singing background vocals from him. And, and Mike had been with Craig for a, a real long time and, and wasn't going anywhere. And so anyway, I said, yeah, I'll do it, man. So I, I ran the semi truck with, with the truck driver for a while and, you know, just ran these stages at every gig. had no clue what I was doing. Of course. At least I, I was not a stage manager, but I knew enough about loading in and loading out that I could probably get by. And uh, so long story short, you know, band members keep changing and, and the world goes round. And uh, Craig called me one morning. I was getting up and uh, he said, what are you doing? You awake? And I said, yeah, I have a one-year-old son. I am wide awake. <laughs> he said, how do you feel about, you know, playing guitar with me? How well do you know my songs? And I said, man, I know, I know all of them. I can do it. And he said, the gig's yours if you want it. Wow. And I played, and I played guitar for Craig for two years. So six years collectively was um, the time I was with Craig and, and uh, yeah, I did merch uh, stage manager, guitar tech and, and played in a band for two. So that's a super cool story and it. A great positive story to share with the listeners who aspire to do what you do and to play, to be a big name or to play with a big name, you have to seize every opportunity, um, even if it's not the most glamorous thing, right? Shining the windows or the wheels on the bus, you know, sometimes that gets you on the bus later on. You know what I mean? Like exactly. you can't pass those up and think that you're too cool to, to do those kind of jobs to pay your dues, right? Yeah. And, and the way I looked at it, man, I, uh, I, I really just wanted to be on a tour bus. I wanted to be in that world. I wanted to be on that level. And, you know, as much as I didn't want to be a merch guy, I, I thought it was really freaking cool that I got the opportunity to do that and see, see the country and other countries for that matter. We, uh, when I was stage managing and, uh, still we, we did a one-off in Seoul, South Korea, Wow, okay. flew all the way over to the USO base there and did a yeah. show for the troops. And I was stage managing there. And so, you know, the back line and the stage teching and all that stuff that comes into it, man, I, I, I didn't play guitar over there at that time with Craig, but you know, to be in that, that position that I was in and to fly 15 hours and see another part of the world that I'd love to see again. But you know, it's like, I wouldn't be able to do those things. You know, if I was just like, no, no, thanks. I don't, I don't want to do merch. That's not where I'm going. You know, I, I would have missed over half the things that I've seen in my life. You know, it's like, and at so a very did. young age too, right? I mean, you did all this in your twenties, right? Yeah, I started merch with Craig when I was twenty-two years old, yeah. and and like I said, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. You know, it's like holy crap, Craig Morgan. I grew up on his music, you know. So and and now Craig is a dear friend. He he's ended up recording a couple of my songs that I've been a co-writer on, and and uh, Craig and I have written together, and I think we've written really good songs together. Obviously, I mean, it's it's Craig freaking Morgan, but sure, um, yeah. So you know, getting my foot in the door, man. I, I think I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Uh, uh, while I was there. And six years later, I, I called Craig up and said, Hey, look, man, you know, at, at the end of the month, I'm going to be done in the band and I'm chasing my own artist thing. And, and he was nothing but helpful and, you know, gracious. And uh, so, yeah, where I'm at these days is, is chasing my artist thing and, and still doing the songwriter thing. And like, you know, I'm playing at the Nashville palace a few times a week and, sure. and kind of just keeping my head down and, and like everybody, man, chasing the artist deal. And, and I feel like there's a, there's a cool story behind why I'm at where I'm at. So I'm just, uh, I'm blessed to be able to uh, say that I'm just, you know, running and gunning, man. Well, every, every day is a teeth cutting day, right? You cut your teeth every day and you get better and you know, you never know when your opera, the big opportunity is going to come. Right. And and it was, it was at the big table. No, I get it. And then uh, it's interesting because later I watched the video. I think it was, I think it was the Craig Morgan and jelly roll where they sang, was it almost home, almost home uh, yeah. at, at the Grand Old Opry? And I was uh, I stumbled across the video and I really didn't think much about it. And I started like kind of scams like, hey, wait, that's Sam. That's Sam on stage with those guys. <laughs> I, did, I didn't put two and two together. And it's like I didn't realize that, you know, Jelly Roll was on, you, you like it all came together. Uh, yeah. So it was yeah, interesting was- to see that. And I mean, what that video, I think, had when I looked at it yesterday, it had like three and a half million views or something like that. Man, I bet it, it's it, jelly is just absolutely taken over everything, man. And, and Craig and, uh, and his relationship is super cool. So for that to happen was, was really special. I mean, because then he was already something, you know, when he obviously, you know, singing on the Opry with Craig, but now, you know, after this award show, I'm sure you probably watched it, man. It, it's been pretty cool to say that I, that I stood beside him, man. And, yep. and, uh, and got to share that experience with both of those guys. And, and, you know, the band, are all my brothers still, even though I'm not traveling around with those guys anymore. And it's, yeah, it was a, that was a pretty neat thing, man. And that's, it's funny you bring that up because 
I've gotten screenshots like, holy crap, I didn't know that. You know, I was like, yeah, <laughs> sure. that was me. I was that's, standing right there. <laughs> that's super cool. I had an artist uh, out of California, spends a little time out in Las Vegas by the name of Scott Billman, Scott Little Billman. And uh, Scott actually played drums with Jelly Roll on one of the videos oh. on YouTube. I don't know. He was never in the band. He was a session guy, but he was in the video for one of them. And I looked at that the other day. So he has oh. a connection with Jelly Roll as well. So it's, it's funny. Oh. Like, it's like everybody's so connected in music somehow. You're just like th- third degree of, you know, I knew that person through that person kind of thing. It's a small world, right? It really is, man. It's a big city, but a small town is how I like to say it, yeah. you know, because everybody knows everybody. And, of course. And, dude, and, but I will say, man, while we're talking about Jelly is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Well, he's really. humble, man. You know, it's like, most of the time you come up on the streets and in prison like that, you're more humble than some people are. Right. And totally. I think you, yeah. you gotta, you gotta give him props there, but the dude yeah. is clearly talented and appreciates everything. And, and the place where he is right now, you can tell he's so humble and so appreciative of that because, totally, man. you know, his life before that was, was shit. Then, and, and he would tell you that, right. You know? Yeah. 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 100%, yeah. Man. yeah. It's been cool to see. And, and we did a couple performances with him, you know, and, and so he came up, we played our last show of last year was the Ryman auditorium. And, uh, that was my first time playing the, it wasn't the Grand Ole Opry on the Ryman Craig, Craig sold out a night there at the Ryman. And that was our last show, full band show of the year. And Jelly Roll came out and sang almost home with us again. Nice. So it's been cool, man, to, to be able to play that song with them two together a couple of different times, man. It's, it's been awesome. So. Share with the listeners real quickly. You, you talk about some of the holy grails of places to play as an artist, you know, the Grand Ole Opry, the Ryman. What's it like uh, from your perspective to walk up on stage at these places? Because here's the thing. Well, let me let me preface, but then I'm going to let you answer it. But yeah. The same day um, that I met you, I had just come from the Grand Old Opry. I did the the backstage tour, and oh, it's like cool, just walking across it, standing in the circle, the history behind it, uh, watching yeah. uh, watching Garth and Trisha Yearwood's introduction of the place. I sat there with the, the just watching the video of Garth, Garth and Trisha and talking about all the people that were were asked to become members of the Grand Ole Opry and I and I literally had tears coming down my eyes and I don't think you get that and unless you feel the power of music like guys like you know us you know we're yeah. so into the music and love the music so much but share with the listeners what your experience was walking up on stage in both of these places for the first time yeah I will I would too like you did the the tour man I would encourage anybody if you're in Nashville for you listening to do that, because it really is a firsthand look at, at some of the most, the most iconic things that have, you know, in this business that has been done. And um, the first time, uh, so when I was still doing stage manager, I would go to the Opry and I'd never done one actually. Yeah, no, I had never done one on the Ryman with Craig. Um, it was just over at the Grand Ole Opry house over in, in music Valley. And um, in between songs, uh, Craig would, play his guitar and on songs he wouldn't play his guitar i got to do some guitar changes for him okay in between songs and so that was my first thing was uh, there's no way i'm getting ready to walk out on this stage and grab a guitar from the man singing in the circle you know so i got to stand there grab his guitar from him and vice versa bring him a guitar in the circle and and so that was my first experience and that was nerve-wracking enough to make sure my timing was right to you know don't, not just stand behind him for 30 seconds waiting for him to end the song you know you got to time it just right and don't trip on the way out right don't trip over your own shoes <laughs> exactly and so that was my first experience which was nerve-wracking enough just just seeing the place from the stage but the first time playing it Luckily, I had had some experience of, you know, where to walk in, where the rooms were, what the kind of what the drill was. But there was nothing like playing it and uh, and singing on that stage for the first time. The front of house booth that you can see from the stage has plexiglass on it and is soundproofed. And we did a song and I'm like, okay, I'm making it through, you know, and then uh, we get to do um, that's what I love about Sunday. And from just growing up on that song and what it says and the melody and everything just has always made me feel something. Right. Yeah. And uh, so playing that, I kind of have the head lick part underneath it on the acoustic thing. And, and I just remember getting to the course and I see me and Craig's reflection off of that plexiglass. And uh, that got me finally, I was sure. like, where am I at? You know, I'm kind of trying to perform the best I can and, you know, remember the dang song. And, 
And uh, when I saw me standing next to Craig and I saw that in the reflection and everything that I'd been through and just, you know, my journey to to be able to stand on that stage, that, that finally uh, made me well up for sure, man. And yeah. and that's why I was just like, I can't freaking believe that I'm here and, and I'm two feet away from, you know, from Craig in the circle. And, and I found a lot of times when I was playing that stage, I would just look to the left and, and just stare at the wood in the circle. You know, it's just it's it's really powerful. And when I got done, it's, it was like any other gig, you know, it's, I feel like I blacked out, you know, you put your guitar back in the case, you say bye to everybody, you say bye to Mr. Jim on the way out. And, and then you get in your truck and you go home to your family. It's like, did I just really play the Grand Ole Opry? Like, like it was a gig, you know, it's just, yeah. it's really, really, man, it's surreal it's, almost. Right. Really, yeah. And, and honestly, man, it did feel like I blacked out. You only do three or four songs, but it's like you start one and you end the last one and then you're done and you're driving home in your truck like everybody else does. Sure. It's like, sure, it's really crazy. But anyway, that's my experience on on the Grand Ole Opry House. But um, the, the one at the Ryman was really cool. Like I said, Jelly Roll came out and uh, and Trace Adkins was there that night, too. He surprised the, the crowd with with Trace as a guest. And uh, we did uh, meet me in Arling- uh, Arlington, and uh, that was just the the song is just wow, and uh, that was pretty cool. And uh, when we showed up for sound check, I didn't realize how close it, the benches and all the the pews were to the stage. Of course, you know, the Grand Ole Opry House is huge when you look up at it, but when you get to the Ryman, I mean, it's it's right there. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of creepy feeling, man. It's when you're when you're singing those songs and the the room and the the dynamics and the acoustics in there is, is just really unexplainable. You know, it's just, it's just all very personable. It's mother church. I mean, of course, everybody says there's ghosts in there and stuff. And I, I would probably believe it because it's, it's pretty powerful, man. Hallowed halls, right? I mean, hallowed yeah. halls. The, you talk about the size of um, the Grand Ole Opry and it, you know, the size steps down to the Ryman, different acoustics in both. But then you've got the Bluebird Cafe, right? Which is, you're also a, v- a veteran of of playing uh, rounds at at the Bluebird. Yeah. Um, I was going to have some fun with you just for a minute, just to, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I, I don't know if uh, a lot of people haven't been to the Bluebird, and I don't know if you knew like how many seats they had in the Bluebird. A little Bluebird trivia for you, real quick, right? Oh boy! Any idea how many how many people can sit in the in the bluebird is it, is it 60 close 90 yeah 90. is it 90 okay yeah. i almost said 75 but it seemed like i was going to be overshooting it yeah and then i was surprised to find out that kathy mateo was one of the original artists uh, that first played the bluebird and then the first writer's night was held in 84 and don schlitz was Wow. First special guest who won a Grammy, and he wrote the song "The Gambler," right? Made the song yeah. "The Gambler" famous, or and Kenny Rogers made it famous. But that was a Don Schlitz song, and then he was um, uh, "Forever and Ever Amen." Too, he, wasn't he was, it? and uh, that he wrote. I think Paul Overstreet was yeah. part of one of the first rounds with Schlitz, and those guys wrote together a lot of George Strait songs too. Uh, "Forever and Ever Amen," Randy Travis, yep. and then he had one called. Uh, Seeing my father and me, which was a which is a great song by Paul Overstreet, but uh, yeah, a lot of history in there. And uh, Taylor Swift was what discovered in there when she was fourteen years old by Scott Borchetta. So it, yeah. it's the crazy. Garth heard the dance was being sung by the writer, uh, and Garth was in the crowd the first time he ever heard that song. If, yeah. I'm, if I'm not mistaken on that, that yeah. little yeah, I think. <laughs> and it's so interesting because um, even for me. You hear of the Bluebird all your life, or not all your life, but uh, I'm an old guy, but uh, you, you hear about it for years and years. And I think I equate it to the Alamo in Texas. If you if you grow up and you take Texas history, you learn all about the Battle of the Alamo. And it's this big, it's this big place in your mind. History has made it into this big place and you show up. And it's just this little bitty thing that looks like a church, yeah. right? And it's it's almost like, can I say anticlimactical because it's, sure. you know, in your mind, you're thinking, man, I thought it was going to be like five city blocks in size. Oh, and it's, that it's, place, it's small. And I remember pulling up to the Bluebird for the first time. And I'm like, this is it. Like it's in the strip center. The awnings kind of ripped. And it's like, it was yeah. kind of lackluster, but good yeah. God have some great people, singer songwriters and 
established artists in general come through the the doors of that place holy it really is hard to believe and like when you see yeah the power that's been in that tiny little joint i'm surprised the you know the roof hadn't fallen in from the freaking huge songs that i've been saying in there exactly really wild the fact that i mean you know garth brooks sat in here it's like you gotta be kidding you know it's some of the biggest ever the biggest ever do it man in my book well, and the crazy thing, people like even as big as Steven Tyler from Aerosmith have sat in that right. room and played songs, right? Like you, you, you and yeah. Bono from U2. Like there's been so many great artists that have come through the doors of the Bluebird. Yeah, I was very lucky to, um, I actually, the, the night that I did it the first time, I was actually in the round in the middle of the room because now they do it on the stage up against the wall too. Okay. Yeah. And I was excited the first time I played it. Uh, we were actually in the round and, the, and just sitting in a chair, everybody sitting around you, you know, I mean, you could reach over to somebody's table and touch it, you know, yes. it's a pretty cool thing. And, and a lot of these songs that I'm writing too, I, I like to write really personal stuff with my wife and my boys. I've got a lot of things that hit home to write about. And uh, I call them bluebird songs because if you, if you sing those in the bluebird, you know, people are going to listen and and pay attention because it's just such a, you know, trying to hone in on my craft. It's like, you know, I'm really trying to, to stay true to myself and, and uh, with my family, it's easy to do. And just my life experiences with family things and, and just growing up. People in the Bluebird freaking listen, man, and it's it's really awesome to just and nerve wracking at the same time. Oh, yeah. It's not a big festival show where you're singing in front of thousands of people. It's like, and these guys are going to listen. It's to intimate. Everybody. It's very Same. intimate. And I think yeah. you would agree with me too, Sam. I had I somebody did an interview on me years ago, and they asked me, "Do you ever get nervous playing like because I played some festivals here that were two, three thousand people?" And they said, sure. "Do you ever get nervous going up and playing on stage?" And I said, "You know, I." I really don't. But if you no. ask me to sit down in front of three people and play in front of three people and yes. you know that those people, you have their undivided attention. Would you agree with me that that's more <laughs> what I just played is, my sister-in-law's wedding just over the summer and I was about to shake out of my <laughs> suit and, yeah. and I told some of my, uh, my wife's family friends, we were out there and, and I told him, I said, Eric, I would rather sing in front of 20,000 people course, right now than sing in front of the 70 people that are sitting here going, you know, watch me on the first dances, you know, it's yes. like, yeah, yeah, sitting at the Bluebird, you can hear the glasses clinking and it's like, all right, here we go. Buckle down and, and exactly and do, man. So, but, but what a great place to intake and ingest music. If you're a music lover, I mean, to sit in a listening room like that and just, just give your undivided attention to people that are pouring their hearts out through three and a half minutes of story, right? It's, it's just an yeah. amazing thing. And, yeah. you know, nine out of 10 people won't feel that way, but I, I know I do. And I really enjoyed my first time at the Bluebird. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree, man. It is, it is something special for sure. Yeah. Well, it's my understanding and please educate me if I'm off a little bit here, but it's my understanding. You have a pretty new song out. Is it called me and all my songs? Is that fairly new for you? Am I on track there? You're on track there. Uh, I haven't released it yet, man. I'm, I'm trying to some do some final touches here on, on what I want to put out, but I'm trying real hard to get music out before the end of the year. Okay. All right. Um, if not, it's, it's going to be the first of the year. Um, I'm actually opening up for Craig again, a full circle moment. I'm doing a festival in Monterey, Tennessee, and I'm, I'm one of the openers for Craig there that day. And I'm really trying to have music out before that show. And me and all my songs is in the running. I have uh, one song of mine called Barn that I'm really wanting to release. And I've been playing me and all my songs out. I wrote that with Dan Smalley and Bobby Tomberlin. And uh, people are really, really enjoying that song. And, and I enjoy singing it just the same. But, yes, that is a fairly new song, just a few months old, man. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking about throwing that one out there. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you should. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit more or what you can share about the song, like, what was the mindset or what, what was the idea? Where did it come to you at? Right. Yeah, totally. I, uh, I actually just saw Dan Smalley the other day. Um, we, we wrote over at Dan's house and, uh, you know, we're tossing around ideas and what do you want to write? Where are you all at? And, uh, and he goes, man, I got this idea called me and all my songs and, and me and Bobby were just like, we love it. And Bobby started playing that. Dan was like, I love that. And, and that's where we ran with it. Maybe you can get Dan Smalley on here to tell you about where that idea came from, because I know I'll get it wrong. But when we were talking about it the other night, I, I said, dude, I, I've been playing the song out and everybody just loves it. And uh, and he told me where the idea came from. He's been doing some shows over in Denmark. And uh, 
when he was on his way home, I think, like I said, I'm not even going to try to explain where his idea came from, but it was Dan's idea. And I tell people that I'm, I'm very blessed to be a part of that because essentially the song is about me and all my songs on an old bar stool. And we list all the songs that this guy is up here singing. And, uh, it's about this girl falling in love, uh, from the crowd while I'm singing all me and all my songs. And, um, I take it as the way I portrayed it was kind of a song to my wife of chasing me on this, on this dream that I really couldn't do without her. And, uh, you know, her being with the kids while I get to go play these shows and write every day in town. And, and, uh, so I kind of sing it as a, an appreciation to her of, you know, you fell in love right, right then and there with me and all my songs and you're, and you're still on the ride with me. It's cool where these songs come from. And I've always got, so wrapped up in the behind the music or the storyteller portion of the songs. And a lot of artists, I don't know that they necessarily need you to know the gory details of why or how they came up with them because they want you to interpret them the way that you want to interpret them. But, right. but being the, but being the music geek, like it, I think you just listen to songs differently when you understand the meaning and case in point, I had, a guy on my show, Kyle Hutton, he's a local musician here, and he wrote a song called Three More Bottles and She's Gone. And on the surface, that sounds like, oh, another drinking song, right? But what people don't know is that he and his wife are foster parents, and he knew that when they had this one baby, they had three more bottles in the refrigerator for the baby, and then the mother was going to come pick the baby up and take him away. So Whoa. Right. So you listen totally different to the song. At first you think, oh, another fall in love, fall off the bar stool drinking song. But it's the three bottles he's referring to are baby bottles with milk in it and not has nothing to do with alcohol. So I love that. I love that stories behind the songs because you you can get inside the story and listen in a whole different way. And it opens up so many different things. Actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of your older songs, which are some of my favorites. Who's Teaching Who, which uh, you wrote with Ethan Phillips, right? Yes, sir. Great song. Love that. And then there's one of my favorites, uh, The Drinker. Love that song, too, man. Yeah, (laughs) good stuff. And I want to let the listeners know that they can go out to YouTube and find both of those songs for sure and the video associated with it. So Yep. To the listeners, and along with uh, and along with me and all my songs, yeah, that's that's on my socials as well. I think I think that one's up on my YouTube too. And and you know, it's it, going back to writing songs every day. You write them. Sometimes people never hear them, but it's like all of a sudden you've got hundreds of songs that you haven't recorded and put out to the world to yep. hear. You know, yep. And uh, I get that question a lot when you when can I listen to these on Spotify and iTunes and and all that. And that's coming, I promise. Uh, yeah. But now, man, I I am just. Feet forward, writing every great, day, man. You have you a know, special so. talent that a lot of people don't have. And I've always said you're either a lyricist or you're a lyrical airhead. It's one of the two. Like there's right, no, yeah. there's no in-betweens, right? And uh, you can either do it or you can't. But uh, I, I did want to ask you about The Drinker. Uh, again, one of my favorite songs that that you wrote. And I wanted to understand a little bit about how that one came to life for you. If you don't mind sharing that with myself and the listeners. I'd love to, man. Uh, Dan Alley, not Smalley, Dan Alley and I, which he's been my best, one of my best friends since I've moved here. Him and I were roommates together over in Donaldson. And uh, we had a little two bed, one bath house. And uh, we had an enclosed back porch, a screened in back porch on it. And, and we'd write a lot, you know, and folks would come over to the house and write with us or vice versa. I'd leave. He'd bring somebody over. You know, he'd leave. I'd have somebody over. One night, we honestly were just drinking on our back porch, man, and just playing guitars and hanging out. Uh, we weren't even writing. And uh, we just kind of came up with this idea of kind of where the world was at, really. You know, everybody's blaming guns on stuff and not the people doing it. And really, that's what we were talking about, of just kind of like the craziness of what was going on at the time. And we were sitting there thinking, well, what if we wrote a song? Like I said, we weren't even writing. We're just, you know, drinking, to be honest. And uh, what if it was like, you know, it ain't the it ain't the gun. It's the finger, uh, you know, and I, I was smoking cigarettes at the time. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's not the lighter's fault that I'm smoking this right now. Like I'm sitting here doing it. So that was kind of some more lingo in it. And then it just turned to uh, it ain't the bottle. It's the drinker. It's like, you know, it's it's not the bottle's fault, you yeah, know, kind of yeah. thing. 
And so, like, the second verse does get a little dark. You know, I I pass by the liquor store, swear I see my name, all that stuff. But really, we just wrote a song about this kind of drinking man who we had pictured in our head. Sure. Uh, And I make the joke about it before I sing it. I said, me and Dan were drinking one night and wrote a song about a drinking man. Yeah. And and we wrote that song in an hour, maybe, and uh, listened to it a couple days later. And we're like, dude, this song, I think, is really good. And uh, so we, that was three or four years ago. And, and we both still sing that song out in town, in and around town, you know, so. It's a great kinda, song, was, man. And we were just hanging out, drinking a little bit, picking some guitars and, and just being, being roommates, man. And, and it just fell out. So I've always said, it's amazing how these things come about. And when you, you, you know, I've had some, some, every artist that I've had on my show is great, but I've had some big ones. One of the guys from Hall and Oates was on my show. And, you know, you talk about Daryl Hall writing the song, Rich Girl, oh, back on. in the day, 15 minute right, you know, in 15 minutes, he pops this out and it's still played it on the radio fair, today. Yeah, no, it's like, <laughs> and it seems like to me, and you could agree or disagree, but it seems like some of the best songs are the ones that just pop out organically in 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And there's, you know, it didn't take you years to write it. They just come, man, you know. I couldn't agree more. If if you actually, you know, you have a grasp on what you're doing. I, I agree in that sense. You know, I, anybody could could crap something out in 15 minutes. But when it's stuff like that, the real ones seem to come out that fast. In particular, one song I wrote when I really started getting a grasp on songwriting. I wrote a song in 45 minutes about my mom who um, had some alcohol issues and uh, unfortunately isn't isn't here today. But um, I wrote this song about it. Uh, the title of the song is Bottle in Your Hand, and, and the hook of the song, to just spoil it, I guess, is there ain't room to hold the ones you love when there's a bottle in your hand. And I wrote that song by myself, and like you're saying, man, about 45 minutes, it just it just came out. And wow. um, that was probably the first real song I wrote. I, I look back on some of the earlier stuff I wrote and laugh at myself, you know. But uh, that was probably the first one, you know, like you're saying, it, it just came out, came out really quick. And um to the new age stuff, there's a song on a Cody John on the new Cody Johnson record called Dirt Cheap. And uh that was a solo right from a guy down here named Josh Phillips. And uh some of the best songs, man, they they're solo rights. Yeah. And uh I, I totally, totally agree with you in, in that sense. It's so cool how they can pop out like that. Um, it's just what you feel and, and you could get in a room and throw that idea around and people will agree with you on those ideas and you could write a great song. But when you have that in your heart, n- nobody else can jump on that train with you. When it falls out like that, man, it's coming and you've got to put it on paper before. No, I hear you. I hear you. I wanted to shift gears on you just a little bit. So being a guitar player myself, I had a, I had a few questions for you centered around the guitar and cool. um, I'm going to see if my memory served me correct uh, because sometimes I question my memory, but uh, we talked um, the day we met in Nashville and you told me the brand of your guitar. I I specifically asked you about it. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I remember you telling me that uh, I believe you said it was a Chinese made guitar. It It is. is, It's an Eastman. Yeah. Eastman. Okay. Behind me, man. It's uh, I love this thing. This is my, this is my go-to. Yeah, Eastman. Okay, I'm gonna write that down before I forget it. It's my go-to, and um, they make everything great. I picked this thing up off the wall at Corner Music at the newer location. I write a lot and play a lot and drop D, and I picked it up off the wall. I was broke. Me and my my wife, we were dating at the time. I picked it up off the wall, put it in drop D, and it just stuck like a dream and I was like I have to leave with this guitar and I was broke and she went behind my back went to the counter started a credit card at corner music and she said let's go bring it up to the counter I'm like what are you you know like yeah I wish you know and and she was like no I I got it you know and I I paid my wife girlfriend at the time payments until I paid this guitar off I wanted it that bad I love this guitar with everything I've got I've written a, a million songs on it and uh, yeah, it's my, it's my number one, man. It's just my go-to and it is just a cannon of a guitar, I think. And, and um, I put a different pickup in it for, you know, if we're talking gear nerds, it's the, um, the LR bags, bags element. Yeah. 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 Okay. It had the Anthem in it when I came with it, but I, a lot of these places I'm playing, I use a sound hole cover just to, I like my wedges a little louder. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I use sound hole cover and um, the mic, you know, it has the blend knob in it, but the mic was still bleeding a little bit for my liking. So yeah. I just 
the element in it, which is just the piezo. Yeah. Instead of having the mic mic in it as well for the sure. blend. Yeah, that's the guitar nerd behind that. Yeah. No, I like that. I, I play I, uh, my Taylors, uh, which are my stage guitars. So they, uh, I play through a bags on on all of those. So, uh, yeah, I remember it's funny that you use the term canon because I remember sitting there and thinking that very thing when I watched you play because sometimes the songs don't have to be great when you're listening to musicians, but if the sound is good, it's, right. it's very palatable. And, and you guys, and, and I'm not saying, I wasn't prefacing that by saying you guys suck, but you sound, the, the tone's no, no, good. No, you no, guys were great all, all the way around, but you're Eastman. And I think if my memory ser- serves me correctly, again, Corey was playing a Martin. I don't, I don't know what model of Martin, but I, I think it he was, was like playing. A, yeah, it was like a triple O thing and they only made a handful of them. Gosh, I might be wrong now. But yeah, he he got a screaming deal on that thing. It's one of the smaller body yeah. guitars, and and that thing, man. I, speaking of cannons, dude. I mean, that guitar. Both is, of them sounded amazing, man. I'm telling you, like it. I'm a I'm a geek about the tone, right? The tone that comes sure. out of the speaker, and it it really sounded good in that room. And I, okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna attribute it to it being a cool room or whatever. It, it's probably right. cool. But there yeah. was some good quality sound coming out of those PAs, right? They were the speakers, you, right? So, yeah, I yeah. couldn't remember the brand. And, and would you say that Eastman is a higher-end guitar? Is it a lo- generally known as a lower-end guitar? I know nothing about them, but I'm, they I'm have like... Both. Okay. Um, they, they have both, and they make mandolins. They've been making electrics for a few years now, too. And um, But really, they're, they're handmade in China, yeah. And um, they do have their lower-end ones. Speaking of numbers, I think that guitar is like mine is like sixteen or seventeen hundred bucks. I think, uh, but no, they do have uh, Ethan Phillips, who I wrote, who's teaching who with. He's got one of the real, real nice ones, and they're they're up there. But you can also get some of the lower end ones that sound great. But yeah, I mean they're they're down in the hundreds, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, hundreds of dollars, you know, you get what you pay for. But with Eastman, you're gonna get something good, whether it's the really high end stuff okay. or the stuff and i when i say lower end stuff it's not cheap stuff it's just the cheaper stuff yeah if that makes sense yeah. uh it's all great but yeah Corey's is uh he was playing a martin yeah and and he did give a, a pretty penny for that but he got a screaming deal on it and i mm-hmm. kind of envy him for it but <laughs> no they both sounded great thanks for sharing that about the, oh, the guitar i'm always i'm always geeked out by guitars a little bit so um Me too. Good, good to know how long have you been playing the guitar? Did you start as a young kid? Did it did it start I in did. the teens? Like, well, talk to the listeners a little bit about when you jumped on the guitar bandwagon. Yeah, I was in the third grade. I got a just a Squire Strat in the amp and the and the combo package deal for Christmas from Santa Claus, aka my dad, and um, and I just fell in love with it. And looking back, that thing wouldn't stay in tune for nothing. You know, it was my first one, but I beat around on it. And uh, my brother's first guitar uh, was a Squire Telly, but it was one of the old, old ones. And it was like the when the Squire stuff was like legit, you know, I mean, this guitar was was awesome. And um, I, it was third grade. And honestly, I got frustrated. My, my dad was a preacher growing up and uh, I took lessons from my youth pastor. And I got frustrated for a while. I was playing sports growing up too. And I put it down for a while when yeah. it just started to piss me off. And that was about a year I stopped playing. And then I heard something on the radio and my brother, like I said, was a guitar player too. And I was like, you know what? I think I could do that. And I picked it back up and and just finally something between my brain and my right and left hand clicked. And I was like, oh, I, I got that. And I've never put it down since. Interesting. Uh, but it was third grade. So however old you are in third grade, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're making me think way too much now. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good to me. But yeah, man, I was a kid, and uh, yeah, that that year that I put it down from being frustrated, like anybody starting out doing something would would be. I that's the only time I haven't had a guitar in my hand. Well, who would you say was the better picker, you or your brother? Oh, my brother for sure. Now I don't know. I, I mean, he still plays at his house and stuff, but. I mean, me now, because it's my profession, you know, but my brother was a really good guitar player yeah. growing up. Like I said, my dad was a preacher, and um, at church, uh, the band was, my brother played guitar, a guy named Dwayne Phillips played the other guitar, and Dwayne Phillips toured with George Jones for 11 years. Uh, the drummer was Doug Dimmel. He was with Barbara Mandrell for years, and the bass player was a guy named Brian Hur, and he was um, 
One of the bigger bands he was in was a group called Route 66. They were, I think, a Western Swing band down there, right? And they, yeah, they went I think so, yeah. Garth. And uh, so that's what I grew up listening to was, you know, all of these guys in freaking huge bands. My little old brother, you know, over there hanging on, playing these church songs, you know, every Sunday morning. Sure. And, uh, but no, it was definitely my brother growing up. I learned a lot of stuff from my brother. And like I said, when I was playing dobro in the band that i wasn't even needed in my brother was smoking so definitely him then for sure well who would you say your guitar heroes were coming up as as a kid who were you who were you gravitating to is there a couple that just come to mind real quick there is man uh clint strong all those guys in haggard's band and who played on all the haggard's records one of my favorite guitar solos is on uh haggard's song what am i gonna do with the rest of my life and man, it was just, when I heard that, I was like, I want to do that. You know, it's just a, kind of a mix between country guitar and kind of a jazz thing on that solo, really. But Jerry Reed, you know, I don't play like that claw style, like with a thumb pick like they do. Yep. But when I heard all that and how much they move and how much they chicken pick, I mean, and they were even, they were sweeping mm-hmm. back then, you sure. know, before sweeping was like oh, doing yeah. metal oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I would say some of those guys and, you know, watching Dwayne play on Sunday mornings and stuff and, and that just kind of the country country guitar deal. But from all those older records, I, I would say that um, Clint Strong and I mean, and even Hag was playing on a lot of that stuff, too. So, yeah, off the top of my head, that's probably what I'd what I'd say. Isn't it amazing? Like when you when you say I'm a, I'm a musician, I play the guitar and you you think about how good you are, and then you you start thinking about guys like Jerry Reed and Glenn Campbell and and Roy Clark and Brad Paisley and uh, well, I was going to say all- Brent Mason I didn't even talk about, but you know when I was you know and then I was born in '95, so it's like when I finally was listening to the radio that, that was all Brent and you know Dan Huff and sure. James Mitchell and all those guys. You know, it's like. I don't know how they're doing it, but I love it. And I'm going to take it. But. <laughs> Keith Urban, like all those guys are just great pickers. You know what I'm saying? Like they, Absolutely. they could, they could put on a whole show just on the guitar and not ever even open their mouths. You know, Gosh, you ain't lying, man. What, yeah. um, in your opinion, Sam, what, what makes a great song? Like, have you ever thought about mm-hmm. that much? Like what, what is it that just either people gravitate to a song or they don't? It's funny because uh, just the other day, I don't know who said this or who quoted this, but you could have a really bad lyric and a great melody and listen to it, but you could have a really bad melody and a great lyric. And I don't think anybody would give it as much attention as it deserves. I think the the melody is, is very important, but if you're not saying something, you know, it's like the older stuff, man, it was just so true and so real. So it's like, I, I mean, Obviously, this is the dumb answer, but the lyric and the melody just finding a place to live together. Okay. You know, you can't just freaking talk out your butt and, and have an amazing melody over it. You know, the, sure. the two have to marry together because you can have a really great lyric and sing it. And it's like, ah, that still just doesn't feel right. Like the way that I'm singing this lyric just doesn't feel right yet. And you've yeah, kind of got to find a new way to do it. So honestly, I think when you find a way to marry the melody and marry the lyric, I think you've really got a good song, you know, whether it's whatever it's saying or not, you know, if the two go together and it makes you feel something, I think you've got a song, man. Yeah. And I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to that question. I'm just curious what kind of what your thought process was around it. You know, if I was to put you on the spot there, you know. Sure. And like, you know, from me and you playing guitars and stuff, too, that's a lot of times I write stuff. You know, I just pick up a guitar and, and whatever just comes out i'm like oh that's kind of cool and then you marry you know you start kind of spitballing stuff and you find a melody around it it's like what did you just say it's, i don't know that's kind of cool and then and then it just all kind of marries together you know but you know between being a guitar player a writer and a singer all of them kind of have to matter but i'm a big like head lick guy too like if i'm writing i like to have a head lick around it and you know certain twin parts you know on the guitar and and uh so yeah collectively all of it marrying together i think is what makes a song you know but melody's melody's huge well they say what all the stars have to align for it to be a great song right 100 percent. and some days it's there and some days it's not i mean you could sit around for four hours and and end up just going to have lunch and not even leave with a song you know or you could sit up here in this little studio room of mine and and come up with with something in an hour of course there's some days it's not so 
again, the stars have to align. And I think the, the songs that just organically come out are sometimes just the best ones. So yeah. What's exactly. new and exciting for Sam Banks as it relates to shows, new music that you can talk about? Share with the listeners a little bit about what's exciting coming up for you. The first thing off the top of my head is uh, that show in May, May 25th. It's in Monterey, Tennessee, just a couple hours outside of Nashville. It's uh, Craig Morgan and Clay Walker are the, are the headliners. Clay is on the 24th. Craig is on the 25th. But I'm doing a show there. It's me, Nate Smith, Ashley Cook, boy named Banjo, the Reeves Brothers. It's it's a two day festival in Monterey, Tennessee, in May, and that's that's a thing on top of my head right now. But right now, songwriter wise for me, William Michael Morgan. If you guys know William Michael, he's on One RPM now, the label, and he's uh, probably getting pretty close. I would think to releasing his project. I have two songs on that that I co-wrote with William Michael and uh, our buddy Dan Hudson. And down there in Texas, where you're at, I've got a song coming out on Josh Ward's next record okay, called uh, Burn Another Beer Joint Down. And I wrote that with a Texan down there, Jacob Boyd, and okay. our buddy up here in Nashville, Andy Austin. Very That's cool. three wrote that song together. That's coming out on, on Josh Ward's record. And and then if you remember a guy named Craig Wayne Boyd, he's got a song on his project that I was a co-writer on as well. So there's some uh, songwriter things happening down here for me. And then that show in May, man, I'm just kind of trying to get out of town a little bit more and play some music, like I said. And uh, if you're still listening, I, I'm not with Craig anymore, you know, so I'm chasing my artist thing 100% and uh, and writing just the same, you know. So some of these songs that I'm not keeping, I'm, you know, I'm pitching and, and thankfully um, still getting songs recorded, so. Yeah, just, you know, for the listeners, you, you got to tell them just because I'm not with Craig anymore doesn't mean I'm not handsome anymore, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you brought you brought it up a little bit earlier. I wanted to touch base on this before we kind of adjourn, but you, you mentioned Spotify, and I went out, and normally what I do is I'll clip songs like, you know, I uh, spoke of some of your songs earlier. And there was no music by Sam Banks there. Speak to the listeners a little bit. Is this Sam being lazy and hasn't put anything on Spotify? I'm doing my best. I I have that song Barn recorded and and in the can and and ready to release. So I'm thinking until me and all my songs happened, that was the song that I was going to release. But no, to to maybe better answer your question, I'm unsigned as a writer. I'm unsigned as an artist. I'm doing all this stuff myself. Uh, and so with writing every day and, and, you know, raising a family and, you know, being, playing a husband, I, uh, honestly, and, you know, as anybody would know, recordings, you know, freaking expensive it is. and, uh, and it's a process, man. Like you can, you can write songs every day, but you don't get to release everything that you write. And so I'm trying to find the thing that, um, best expresses me and what I want to put out to the world. And, um, Honestly, with how much I'm writing, man, I, I keep writing songs that I love and kind of just writing my story and where I'm at in my life and trying to find the best thing that's going to represent me the best way on the first thing that I release. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the best way I could explain it. But like I said, I've got that song called Barn. I wrote with my buddy, if you're listening, Travis Gibson up in, in Missouri. We wrote the song years ago, and I've loved it ever since we wrote it. So to be on the lookout for it, though, you know, with me being unsigned, it's, it's all me doing it myself. Okay. So okay. Fair enough. writing the songs is easier than uh, putting them all together, recording them and then releasing them all. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother line of work in and of itself. I, I wish it. I could say I was being lazy, but it's actually the complete freaking opposite. I'm, I'm busting my butt to, uh, to get everything that I'm uh, writing and, and loving out to the world and to the public. And please know that I was being facetious when I said that, oh. right? Like I, I, I was, uh, that's, that's Randy's poor attempt at being funny, but <laughs> But I know you're not being lazy. You know, if you're a songwriter and you're playing, you're out there, you're out there grinding. I totally get it. So every day, man, writing, writing and playing every day and, uh, and family man and in between every day, he's Uh, hustling every day. He's hustling, hustling, man. And our family first and and music to follow shortly. So hang on with me and, and we'll have it out to the world very, very soon. That's right. Now, uh, where can the listeners find you on social media if they wanted to go follow Sam? My main thing is Instagram right now. I'm pumping up the TikTok deal, but I'm the boring one. I, I don't have TikTok. I post a lot on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And that's Sandbanks music on, on everything there. So okay. Instagram right. is my bigger one, you know, but 
I guess I'm just old school and I have a TikTok, I'll be honest with you, but I'm terrible at, at using it. So yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah. thing. These days, no, you, yeah, you're right. And it's funny because even at my age, I, I, I fight, it's a struggle. It's an internal fight. Like, yeah. do I, do I not? But you know, it's in this, in this line of business, whether it's, you know, my shows, my live music shows, or even the podcast, to be relevant, you you have to have a social media presence. I yeah, hate social exactly. media. I, I wish I didn't ever, if I never saw it again, I wouldn't care. But it is a necessary evil that you have to be on all of these things, regardless of whether people say, well, aren't you a little too old for that? Well, yeah, te- if I was playing around on it, yes, I would answer yes yeah. to that question. But if you're trying to promote a platform, it, it, it's, a, it's a necessity, right? You have to. It really to is. It. Unfortunately, it, it, that's just the game these days is, you know, if you want to get listened to and get seen, man, not everybody can be every, everywhere at once. No. And, and that's the easy way to pick up your phone or your computer and, and find it all right there. So, and it makes you. That's the world we're in these days, you know. You're, and you're right. You're right. And what and the interesting thing is you're a young guy. Like, what, what in the hell did people do 40 years ago to promote right. themselves? Like, it was yeah. <laughs> even to yeah. book a gig like I can get on social media, reach out to a place that I want to play. Hey, I'm Randy. I do this. I do that. Negotiate the deal right over instant messenger and I'm booked. Right. Back yep. in the day, you had to put something in the mail, have a CD, mail it. It got there eight days late. Like it's just crazy yep. times how we do things now versus the way it was done you know, I know 25, 30 I- years ago. So cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is, you know, blessing and a curse, but it's like walk to the neighbor's house and ask for a carton of milk instead of call them, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Sam, listen, man, this has been really cool catching back up with you. And and thanks for sharing your story with the listeners from all over the world. If I get back to Nashville soon, maybe we can catch up for a for a beer or a song or both. What do you say? Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me and and thank you all for listening out there and and listening to what I have to say. Thanks for the platform too, Randy. For sure. It's certainly my pleasure. And for the listeners out there, make sure you go check out Sam on his social medias. Um, And then I also ask the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio and on the website at backstagepassradio.com. You guys take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll be right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.